See my identity? I'm the master rapper, everybody knows me. I'm the one dropping rhymes to make you dance. Now you wanna see me dropping my pants? Ain't no chance. You feeling me? The TSA's been filling me, filling me up like I was Bill Clinton's secretary. <laughs> feeling like I oughta turn my head and cough. <laughs> How am I supposed to dance with my high tops off? I ain't got nothing in my trunk. Get your hands off my junk. You a professional pervert, punk. Hate to take three deep pictures of wee wee. Put your daughter through the scanner again, please. What? Whatever happened to presumption of innocence in the land of the cage in the home of imprisonment? You wanna lock me up for victimless crimes? You just stepped in line to be a victim of my rhymes, this sucker. One mamma jamma put my grandma in the scanner, and they ran around doing the running man like MC Hammer. You can't touch this. That's what my grandma said. But then the scanner gave her cancer. Now my grandma's dead. Damn. The only threat I pose is the stinky rappers who make me hold my nose. My only weapons are the rhymes I compose. They don't mind wasting everyone's time. I wrote this whole rhyme while I was standing in line. I got so much gold around my neck. Your metal detector is about to get, get wrecked. wrecked. Like all those other rappers who just shut down. Cause they know I'm the rappinest rapper around. I'm raptastic. Yo, where'd the beat go? Oh, snap. DJ Bastiat is down to his socks. Master rapper. Yes, rap master? Did you pack a beatbox? They put the turntables in the x-ray machine Trying to see what makes Bastiat's beats supreme But all that they can see is how efficiently I pack Yo, Bastiat, yeah. please bring the beat back We're living in the era of terror When every news headline tries to scare ya Beware of foreign threats to my freedom Ain't no chance it was taken by the man with his hands down my pants I'm a fancy man, I got fancy pants I do a fancy dance, like I got ants in my pants If there's hands in my pants, my dance can't advance Your hands never romance such fancy dance pants Is this real velvet? Search high and low there, ain't nothing but a dope pair of rappers who go where they wanna go So if there's a show there, then we gon' go there Get us in there! Oh yeah, cause I'm a citizen of nowhere Welcome to An Architecture, episode 35. In this episode, we're going to wrap up our Citizen of Nowhere series, which we started back in episodes 6 and 7. Before we start, I want to give a shout out to old school rap group Ends and Means, who are apparently fans of the podcast and remix the theme from Citizen of Nowhere, episode 007, into that wonderful rap song. That was a good rap, wasn't it? They did a really good rap, yeah. It sounds like they were really having some trouble at the airport getting through security. Yeah, and you can tell that they're old school because they're still complaining about the TSA in 2022. It's almost like they wrote the lyrics for that back in 2016, when that was still the biggest thing libertarians had to worry about. (laughs) It almost sounds just like that. Those guys are legit. I can only imagine what'll happen when they have to go through border control. Yeah, gee, I wonder if we'll find out at the end of this episode. This is the third part of our Citizen of Nowhere series. The first two parts of the series uh, we put out in, I think, 2015 and 2016. 
the last time that libertarians were all worked up about hoppy and immigration theory. Now, that was before that all became a big thing. Yeah, because the, the whole Trump immigration thing started while we were recording episode seven. <laughs> yeah. I think we, we started talking about how we had seen, he had just started talking about the border wall and all oh, that yeah. crap. <laughs> right, right. So we were talking about it before it was a big thing. And then as soon as everybody else got interested in it, we, we kind of lost interest. <laughs> right. We like to, to stay ahead of the curve here. Yeah. We like to stay ahead of the drama. <laughs> Maybe we started that whole thing. I'm pretty sure it was us, yeah. So more recently, that this topic has kind of come up again. It's, it's, of course, one of these perennial topics. But as we're recording this, um, Joe and I are both fans of Dave Smith and his podcast. And he recently had a debate with Spike Cohen, the VP candidate for Libertarian Party from the last uh, election. And they were debating open borders in libertarian theory and saying, you know, is it consistent with libertarian theory to support fully open borders? Yeah. And if you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend it over on the Lines of Liberty show. It's one of the better discussions I've heard in the libertarian sphere about the immigration debate. It kind of cuts through all the nonsense. There's a lot of stuff that they just set out at the beginning that kind of describes probably the position that we would have taken at the time we did those original episodes, which is a fairly straightforward Hoppian position. And we'll get into this in a little bit when we're discussing our more revised position. Since we did the original Citizen of Nowhere episodes, We've come up with this theory of public space. Well, really, Tim has. I've just kind of <laughs> been thoroughly persuaded. <laughs> I've just kind of ridden his coattails on it. And, and we've applied this to some of our other discussions in the context of built environment and city planning and all that sort of stuff. And we also used it when considering restrictions on public space in relation to the whole COVID thing in episode 29. In our first two Citizen of Nowhere episodes, uh, we really got into a lot of the consequentialist kind of arguments around border controls and immigration. The reason we took on that topic when we did is that I had actually at the time left my job and, and my wife and I spent two years traveling with our two young kids. So I was reflecting on some of my experiences going in and out of different countries. And then in episode seven, Joe talked about his experiences in moving to Australia, where he now lives, and eventually becoming a dual citizen there. What we want to focus on in this episode is to actually challenge something that both Dave and Spike agreed on, <laughs> the one thing they actually agreed on in their debate, which is this idea that in a libertarian society you know, based on property rights, that all land would be privately owned and the owners of that land would be able to exclude anyone they want for any reason or for no reason. In other words, that things like roads, and parks and playgrounds and beaches. Some people even argue like bodies of water, you know, that all of these things could be privatized in the way that, you know, that, that you have private ownership of your own home and your own, your own property. Um, and that on that property, you enjoy the right of telling other people they can't come in, you know, and you don't need to have a reason to do that. You can just say, you can just say that this is private property and, and everybody gets that. We're going to challenge that. What we're going to argue is that in a libertarian society, an anarchist society, anarcho-capitalist, whatever you want to call it, that there would be and should be public space, which might include roads, things like parks and beaches, where the people who own or control those properties may not necessarily have the right to exclude anyone they want without cause. 
If you've heard our previous episodes about public space, um, including Tim's two Porkfest speeches, you'll have a good understanding of, of where we're coming from here. We want to start out in this episode by just presenting a more concise version of that theory um, and then applying it to the immigration issue. Yeah, I listen back to the to my I, I keep whenever this stuff comes up on Twitter, like I post an, a link to our I think it was our episode 19, which was my Porkfest talk I gave. The title was Public Space, the Missing Link Between Freedom and Property. And I listened back to it. And for one thing, the audio quality was terrible, which we joked about in the episode. But also, I mean, the way I presented it, as I listened back to it, it's kind of like I was reading the dictionary. You know, I had come up with this whole like taxonomy for different types of public space and different modes of ownership and all this stuff, which I think I think there's value in that. Um, but that was really my way of of kind of working through and figuring this stuff out at that time. Since then, you know, as we've talked about it more um, on on other episodes, I, I think we can present this a lot more simply and concisely and hopefully convincingly. Yeah, and I never got around to posting the YouTube version of the uh, slideshow for that episode either. <laughs> so it makes it even more hard to follow. I can't imagine anybody had, had asked for that. <laughs> One person did. Yeah. <laughs> and I sent him the PDF. All right, so to be clear about, about what I want to do here, I'm not going to argue, as, as some, some of Dave's critics do, that, you know, that by making the kind of um, arguments he's making, that these aren't libertarian arguments, you know, or something like that. We're actually going to make this argument starting with Hans Hermann Hoppe. <laughs> he has this piece from, I think it was published in 2011, called Of Common, Public, and Private Property, The Path to, Tro to Total Privatization, or something like that. So it's published, I think, in Libertarian Papers, and we'll link to it in the show notes. This was in that, that episode 19. I had gone through this kind of line by line and, and saying, critiquing it, saying what was right, what was wrong, what made sense, what doesn't. I'm not going to get that wonky here. But my intent here is to ground our theory solidly within the tradition of, let's say, Rothbardian, you know, Hoppian, libertarian ethics and property rights. Yeah, and I think that some of the arguments that we'll be making here actually support some of the outcomes that Dave has discussed with a more firm libertarian theoretical backing than the sort of utilitarian arguments that he's made. Yeah, and, and we're not going to go through like a point-by-point -point rebuttal of, of like Dave's stuff or Spike's stuff or anything like that here. We're just kind of using that as a jumping-off point to, <laughs> to, to claw our way to relevance <laughs> for this, this obscure little topic of public space that we've decided to make a focal point of our podcast. All right, so again, the argument I'm making here is that it's not true that in a libertarian society that all land would be privately owned and the owners would be able to exclude anyone they want. Let me give a quick outline of what I'm going to be arguing here, and then we'll come back and jump into each of this stuff. First of all, we need to clarify what we mean by ownership. Ownership isn't a black or white thing. Um, it can be broken down into various rights and privileges to land, and those various rights and privileges can be divided among uh, different people or groups of people. And in some cases, they can be made public. So you can have a public right, let's say, to access a piece of land. Then we need to think about, you know, how do these rights develop on a piece of land? We're going to start by talking about unowned land. You know, what, what rights do people have on land that is unowned, is unclaimed? And how do you go from that condition to a condition where one person has the right to 
forcefully evict another person from a certain piece of land. If we believe in the non-aggression principle, the idea that you can use force to, as Hoppe says, physically remove someone from one piece of land to another, that requires some justification in order to be consistent with the non-aggression principle. The justification we have there is that by putting land to productive use, you earn this eviction, what I'm going to call a privilege, on certain pieces of land. However, there can be limits to this privilege of eviction. For example, if there were already pre-established uses um, on a piece of land, then those uses should be allowed to persist. In other words, so when we talk about roads, if there's a pathway that people have been using for a long time and then somebody comes along and, and paves it, which we would typically recognize as, as an improvement that would allow them to homestead that land and, and grant them ownership rights, where there was this pre-established uh, use and access of that pathway, that new owner might not necessarily have the right to exclude people who had established a pattern of use of that space. So all of this is before we even start talking about government. We then need to think about, you know, what ownership rights can government establish for certain types of property? Can they earn the same types of eviction rights as private citizens? Or are there certain types of properties where government does not have the right to simply evict people for, as I said before, for any reason or for no reason at all? And of course, we're going to argue that many roads that are now government roads are going to fall into that category. One of the key refinements here to kind of standard libertarian theory is the idea of homesteading particular uses of property rather than homesteading the land itself as a whole property and getting a comprehensive bundle of rights that go along with that property ownership. And this is important because it also means that once that use is established, then the people who have established that use and are the de facto owners of that use have the right to prevent anyone else from interfering with that use. And we'll show how this affects things, especially in the context of you know bums and playgrounds and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think this concept of public space, uh, the way we're going to lay it out, offers some pretty elegant solutions to what have been some really thorny problems in libertarian theory. You know, things like how do we privatize the roads, the age-old question, who will build the roads? <laughs> how do we privatize things like roads and sidewalks? How do we deal with conflicts in public space like homeless people or whoever, you know, causing a nuisance in a playground, which was another uh, grenade that Dave, that Dave Smith threw out there recently. So that's a really rough outline here of what we want to talk about here. And again, we think we can argue this from a Rothbardian, you know, Hoppian, Lockean, homesteading, property rights kind of position. The first thing I want to do here is talk about the concept of ownership. I think as libertarians, we often, we've really clung on to this, this word of ownership as something that is a kind of self-evident concept. We talk about things like self-ownership, and we talk about if some conflict comes up, well, who's the owner of that land, or who's the owner of that property, and you know, are the taxpayers the owner, or are the, are the residents the owners, or the citizens, or whatever. But as, as Joe mentioned earlier, Ownership, especially when we're talking about land, is really a bundle of various rights, which may or not be included in any particular ownership claim. There are three general categories um, that we can group these kinds of rights in. These are Latin words. Uh, the first is usus, which essentially means use of the land. Um, so this would encompass, let's say, access to the land, 
um, the ability to you know do do whatever you want on the land. The second category is fructus, which means essentially the the fruits of the land. You know, it, it's the things that the land produces. So this may, might mean things like you know hunting animals or uh, foraging for berries or mushrooms or something, or you know collecting wood or timber, or fishing or collecting water. It's benefiting from the things that the land produces. And then the third general category here is called abusus. And this generally means the, the ability of the right to modify the land, to, let's say, mine it, to develop it, to cut down trees, to build something, to put up fences. You know, all these kind of things um, would generally fall under this third category of abusus. Yeah, and this may be a, a fourth one, which would be the right to sell the land, to alienate the land to another party. Um, I don't know the Latin term for that. <laughs> well, that, I, I think that's typically kind of categorized under abusus. But the, the way I think about this is that when you're selling land, what are you selling? You're selling these bundles of rights, essentially, right? You're selling the right to use the land. You're selling the right to produce things on the land. You're selling the right to modify or, or develop or change the land. And so I think that you know alienation or, or selling the land is obviously it's, it's a... It's an aspect of ownership here, can kind of apply to each of these three general categories. So again, when we talk about ownership here moving forward, we're going to try to be careful to talk about you know who gets to use land, who gets to benefit from productive use of the land, and who has the ability to modify or develop the land. Now, with that understanding that there can be many different potential rights to land, it's possible that these various rights could actually be divided up among different people or different groups of people. So an example of this that's kind of obvious would be something like a lease agreement. If you're a landlord and you own a home and you rent it out to somebody else, then the renter is gaining the usus rights, right? They get to use the land. Uh, the fructus, you know, the, what the land produces, I don't know. I guess most residential property, you're not producing a whole lot. Our rental property has an apple tree on it, and <laughs> whenever we go over and do some landscaping, we go and, and pick the apples off it. So I guess we haven't we haven't given that fructus to our uh, our renter. Yeah, my fructus all just goes to feeding possums on my property. So again, in that landlord tenant arrangement, the tenant has use rights, um, but the landlord maintains you know, abuses, you know, the right to to modify the property or to sell the property or whatever. So something like a lease agreement is one way to divide up rights to property. You could also have something like a condominium. Um, in a condominium, you have one kind of master property deed. This would be a piece of property that has, let's say, multiple uh, residences on it. When you buy a condominium unit, you usually become a trustee of the condominium. So the condominium becomes like this organization that manages that piece of property. You become a trustee there. And then you have exclusive use rights to your condominium unit. In some cases, you have the ability to change or modify your unit. But in some condominiums, the condominium actually maintains the those the abuses kind of rights. You know, the, the right they might say that you have to paint it a certain color. They might actually make you pay to re-roof it. You know, re-roof your building at a certain time to keep up maintenance. They may not let you build an addition onto it. So that's another example of a type of ownership where usage rights and modification rights are separated. Similarly, you can have things like trusts. 
If you think of like a land preservation trust, you might have a group of people who get together, buy a piece of land, you maybe an old piece of farmland or or a forested property, and they're preserving that for you know, for wildlife. Um, there might be hiking trails where they might allow public access onto that land for hiking. Um, you know, and they, they might they might restrict what you can do there. They might say you know no camping, no fires, things like that. There might be limited hours where you can access it. So again, th- these kinds of arrangements are, are very common, and there's certainly nothing you know unlibertarian about them. Then you can also have easements. Um, these are often things like rights of way. So for example, if there's a new housing development, assuming it's not like a condominium, right? These are individual lots that you can buy and you own your own lot. The road that they develop leading to all these houses, they might grant an easement within the property deeds for each of those residential properties. It might include language like that the property owner has a right-of-way easement you know, to pass and repass over the roads of this development, and they define what those roads are. So again, the property owner doesn't own those roads, but they've secured for themselves an easement where the owner of that road, which might be the developer or, homeowners, or a homeowner's association or something like that, can't prevent them from using that road to access their property. So have I said anything so far that, that is you know, going against libertarian theory or principles or ownership or property rights or anything like that? Uh, sounds all right to me so far. You're not a commie yet. Okay, so let's talk about how certain rights get established for land. First of all, let's think about unowned land. Now, I know in our modern day and age, you know, every piece of land everywhere has been claimed at least by by a government, you know, that they have jurisdiction over. And in a lot of cases that they're determining who gets to to occupy or buy that land or whatever. But, you know, let's wind the clock back. You know, let's say it's like the, the 1800s and, you know, people are going out and settling the American West. And there's a lot of land out there that nobody has claimed yet as an owner. Well, the Native Americans. Well, yes, of course. You know, Native Americans certainly might have had claims to a lot of this land, which is, you know, something we argued in our our episode two. We kind of, we dug into that a bit. But just for this thought experiment, let's assume that there's some portion of unowned land that people are going out and starting to settle. The question here is, what rights do these people have on this unowned land? Well, for starters, you know, let's look to the non-aggression principle, right? You know, nobody, nobody has the right to initiate force against you without your consent. Um, that doesn't matter if you're on your own property or on somebody else's property or on, you know, an unowned piece of land. As libertarians, we would, we would at least start there. Now the question is, you know, well, what else can you do on that land? Can you, you know, can you set up a tent? Can you travel over the land? You know, can you go back and forth from one end to the other? Can you go hunting or fishing or, you know, what I say, collect berries or mushrooms or wood? And I think the libertarian position should be that, yeah, you know, on on unowned land, that you can do all of this stuff as long as those activities don't conflict with the rights of other people to do the same thing. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky, but the general point here is that we can talk about establishing rights without talking about property ownership, right? Your libertarians say that, you know, every right is a property right. And there's, you know, they get into abstractions about, well, you own yourself and your body is your property and all this stuff. But when you're talking about uses on land, there can be various ways of, let's say, resolving conflicts over certain uses of unowned land. So as an example, if there's some part of land that you've been using for hunting and 
and someone comes along and puts up a fence around that and starts cutting down all the trees and says they're going to start doing agriculture there. Now they've just taken away the hunting grounds that you had previously established. So this is a sort of basic conflict that could arise. And the key consideration here from our perspective is not so much that you owned that hunting ground and then this other person came along and made a claim that conflicted with your claim of ownership of that land. It's more that by building that fence and by them claiming the use of that land, it has prevented you from continuing to use that land in the way that you've already established. So this is where we differ a little bit from the standard libertarian theory, where it's not so much about the ownership of the land itself, it's more about the establishment of uses and the prevention of interference with those established uses. Right. And I, th I think your example is getting a, a little bit ahead of where we're at here, because at that point you start to get into questions of you know homesteading and, and development on the land. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there can be certain uses of land where even on, let's say, unowned land, you know, land that people aren't claiming, where conflicts can develop between users of that land. And there can also be ways of resolving those conflicts, or at least coming up with a set of rules or norms that sort out those usage rights without necessarily re requiring somebody to claim the piece of land as an owner for that use. You know, one example might be, you know, you, you, you have a, a fishing spot you like to go to that's on unowned land, and you get there one day and somebody else is there. Well, who gets to use that land? You, you go there a lot, but now you get there and somebody else is there. Did he get there first? We can talk about norms related to these kind of usage rights and ways of sorting them out without necessarily requiring property ownership over the land on which those things are happening. Although, to be fair, standard sort of property ownership, as we understand it, does tend to be the best solution in a lot of situations for resolving these conflicts, and especially once you get into stuff like homesteading and developing the land. The approach that we're talking about ends up looking a lot like the standard libertarian theory of property ownership. Yeah, but I think that's also where we get into trouble as libertarians, because we see this as kind of a, like a one-size-fits-all solution, that if, if the conflict or scarcity develops on some unknown land, that the solution is to privatize it, to, to pick somebody, you know, justly or, or however, to pick somebody who's going to be the owner of that land, and then from that point forward, they get to set the rules of what happens on that land. And it's not obvious to me that that's going to be the best way to resolve conflicts over use of pieces of land on which various types of uses have already been established. An interesting book on this is called Governing the Commons by Eleanor Ostrom, uh, which we've mentioned before on the podcast. She's a, she was, a, I think, the 2009 you know, uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, where she went out and studied various ways that property rights get established and managed among different types of what she calls common pool resources, um, essentially the commons. What she finds is that the classic tragedy of the commons problem where you have a field where a bunch of different ranchers are grazing their cattle, if nobody owns that field, then you would expect that they would all just have their cattle grazed as much as possible and use up that resource and use up that resource quickly, which then leaves nothing available for, for, for them or anybody else. What she finds in governing the commons is that when you have these kind of problems, people often develop complex ways of identifying property rights and managing them. She talks about things like lobster fisheries and things like villages in Africa where there is limited water supply and they have like they have these drainage ditches where they have like a timed release of water to each property. And 
So there are a lot of interesting mechanisms there to think about ways of defining and enforcing property rights that go beyond the basic my land, my rules kind of property ownership that we often default to uh, in libertarian theory. All right. So the next important question here is where we have unowned land and we have people who are using the land, or at least who want to use the land, at what point does somebody earn the right to exclude somebody else from that land? I'm going to use the word eviction to describe this. Again, this is talking about the ability to physically remove somebody uh, from your property, or at least to use you know legal, legal recourse uh, in the justice system to compel people to leave your property, um, potentially under threat of force or imprisonment. Now, what you often hear from libertarians is when we talk about the non-aggression principle, they'll say something like, nobody has the right to aggress against your person or property. And, th and then from that, they say, well, if nobody has a right to aggress against your property, that means that you have the right to evict them from your property. And so this concept of eviction has kind of become conflated, certainly with property rights, but even with the non-aggression principle itself as being something that's inherently just and right for somebody who claims property ownership. I think that's incorrect. I think when we talk about the non-aggression principle, we should keep it simple and talk about aggression against somebody's person, you know, bodily harm to somebody or threat of bodily harm to your person. Eviction to me is really an exception to the non-aggression principle. So in other words, I view this as a privilege granted to property owners rather than some kind of a fundamental right. Because going back to the example of unowned land, if you and I run into each other on an unowned piece of land, and I grab you, you know, and drag you away and, and, and drop you off on a different piece of land, if I don't own that land, if that land is unowned, I don't think any libertarian would see that as a right and proper thing to do. I think they would see that as an act of aggression in violation of the non-aggression principle. So then what changes when all of a sudden I say, well, this is my land, and then it somehow magically becomes okay for me to do the exact same thing that the day before, you know, would have been the worst thing I could have done as a libertarian. Yeah, and one clarification here, when we take out the idea of aggression against property, a lot of people would probably wonder, how do you justify prevention of theft? And if you go back to Rothbard, you know, ethics of liberty or any of that sort of stuff, really what theft is, is the deprivation of use of particular property. So this really goes hand in hand with what we're talking about, where you can't deprive someone of an established use of land. Likewise, you can't deprive someone of an established use of their own physical property and capital goods and that sort of thing. So theft can be handled in that way. Rather than saying that you're aggressing against my property, you say that you're depriving me of the use of my property, which has been established. Yeah, I guess I'd agree with that. But I'm, I'm going to stand by my statement that theft of property is not aggression. You know, it's, it sucks and it's wrong, but that in and of itself is not a violation of the non-aggression principle. You know, fraud is bad, but fraud is not a violation of the non-aggression principle. We can think of a lot, you know, adultery is bad. <laughs> That's not a violation of the non-aggression principle. There, there are lots of things that are bad and that could potentially have some kind of legal recourse, let's say that aren't violations of the non-aggression principle. And I think the desire to derive every right or wrong or punishment or retribution or whatever from the non-aggression principle, I don't think that's doable. 
I think aggression is aggression against your physical person. And these other things like theft or fraud, yeah, they're problems. And we need other justifications for how to deal with them, uh, but they're not aggression. But getting back to my argument, what is aggression is eviction. And so in order to justify the kind of property rights and property ownership that we promote within libertarianism, we need to come up with a justification for eviction from private property. In other words, what is it about gaining ownership of a piece of land that justifies you from that point forward physically removing somebody from the land potentially by force? Some of the types of arguments you might hear here are things like, you know, on, on your own property, you know, you have the right to defend yourself. And so that gives you the right to evict anybody from your property. Um, and that's certainly true. But you also have the right to defend yourself on property that's not your property, right? You have the right to defend yourself on somebody else's property. You have the right to defend yourself on public property or on unowned property. So there's nothing special about property ownership that increases you know your ability or right to defend yourself to the extent that it would justify the ability to evict or prevent entry by anybody for no reason another argument is that other people coming onto your property infringes on your ability to use the property in the way that you want to and this is certainly valid i mean certainly if you're you know you're planting crops in the land and somebody's coming and trampling over them then they're damaging your property, and obviously you have the right to prevent people from doing that. But isn't that just an aggression against property then? What's, so why do you have that right there? Well, look, I mean, I said before that, that there are justifications for you know, preventing theft and preventing fraud and stuff, that we can come up with justifications for that without saying that fraud and theft are aggression. That just sounds a little bit semantic to me. Like, I think most libertarians would listen to that and say, well, well, well yeah, you, that, you're just talking about aggression against property. So that's how you're justifying the eviction. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, I guess so. But my point about separating things like theft and fraud from the non-aggression principle is that I'm trying to separate this concept that eviction from your land is, is like part and parcel of non-aggression somehow. You know what I mean? <laughs> that it's this like fundamental, unquestionable property right. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think it's the power or privilege that's an exception to the non-aggression principle that requires some strong justification. Right. And, the, and that justification is that someone coming onto your land could deprive you of the use of that land, which you've established. Right. And so obviously that, that's valid. But you can imagine that certain types of, let's say, access to land might not conflict with your use of the land, especially if you have like a big parcel and you know someone wants to just cross it from one side to the other. There's no real harm there. There's no real damage there. And not only that, but you know that this notion that you have the right to prevent people from damaging your property, again, you have that same right whether you're on your own land or on somebody else's land. <laughs> you know, if, if you have your car parked in a parking lot and, and somebody keys it, well, you have a right to you know, prosecute that person or whatever for damaging your vehicle. And by and large, you know, somebody coming in and occupying your property isn't going to damage it. So I think that alone, we're going in the right direction, but I still don't know that it's sufficient to justify the ability to prevent anyone from accessing your property. For me, I think the strongest justification here is that on private property that you own, 
your ability to evict people gives you a maximum of freedom on that property. That means that you can have what's sometimes called in law the, the quiet enjoyment of your property without being disturbed by other people. That this right of eviction, you know, if, if somebody's on your property and doing something you don't like, that you can simply ask them to leave and that they should respect that. And by having that privilege of eviction, assuming that people respect that, then it saves you from having to resort to, you know, more, more drastic measures like actually threatening force against them or something. You know, if there's, if there's a legal standard that property owners have the right to evict people, to kick anybody off their property or, or prevent entry by anybody who they don't want on their property, then that, I think, is, becomes the most peaceful way for them to gain full autonomy and freedom and use of their piece of property without resorting to some kind of potentially violent defense of their property. Yeah, libertarian theory tends to present itself as being completely a priori derived from first principles and that sort of thing. If you dig deep enough into Rothbard and Hoppe, there's really this sort of consequentialist basis to it, which is really around the minimization of conflict and the potential for a violent conflict. Yeah, no, that, that's, I think, a great point. And I think that's why we're kind of breaking this down in the way that we are, is because what we're ultimately after is about finding ways to prevent or mitigate or resolve a potential conflict amongst people who are competing for use of, of what is a scarce resource, in this case, land. Now, that said, of course, the solution that like Rothbard and Hoppe might come to is that by assigning you know, territorial parcels of land to individual users, that that's the thing that resolves conflict. Right, Because once you have somebody who owns that land and they have eviction privileges, they set the rules, and from that point forward, everything's hunky-dory, right? Because now it's clear who's setting the rules for that piece of land. However, what's really crucial here and what is often, I think, missed is that in establishing that privilege of eviction, we talk about how this can be done through homesteading, you know, by somebody going out and developing or modifying the land, you know, putting up fences, as, it would, as you said before, you know, putting up fences, cutting down trees, uh, planting crops. These kind of things are, tip are typically recognized as justifying a homesteading claim, which can gain you uh, an eviction privilege. But what gets missed is in the example you gave earlier, you know, there might be some pre-existing use of that land that the eviction privilege has to make an exception for. So, Joe, in the example you gave, you were talking about a piece of land which people use for hunting. And, you know, they're, they're, they haven't claimed that land as an owner in any way, but as unused land, you know, they're, they're exercising. They've established a certain use of that land, uh, let's say, for hunting. So the guy who wants to come then and put up a fence, which prevents them from accessing that land for hunting, that becomes a problem. And we would argue, and in fact, Hoppe has argued in a sense, that this type of pre-established use needs to be protected with an easement when that land is homesteaded and when that new property owner is recognized as having the ability to evict people. I actually here want to read what Hoppe says about this. This is from that article I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast called Of Private, Common, and Public Property. And we went through this in detail in episode 19, if you really want to hear my line-by-line my -line critique of this. But here he's talking about an example of a village that has developed around a commonly used roadway, but where nobody has actually claimed use of the road. 
And now the road's gotten more crowded and it's getting worn down. And it's gotten to the point where it's, it's become truly a scarce resource that needs to be maintained and managed by somebody. And so Hoppe argues that, that at that point, it's appropriate for somebody to essentially start maintaining the road, filling in potholes, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, that now they become the new owner of the road. But here's what Hoppe says. This is quoting Hoppe. How is it possible that formerly unowned common streets can be privatized without thereby generating conflict with others? The short answer is that this can be done provided only that the appropriation of the street does not infringe on the previously established rights, the easements, of private property owners to use such streets for free. And this is important here. And here it is. Everyone must remain free to walk the street from house to house, through the woods, and onto the lake, just as before. Everyone retains a right of way, and hence no one can claim to be made worse off by the privatization of the street. Okay, so that's, I mean, that really right there kind of explains the, the <laughs> this whole long-winded theory that, that we've laid out, and that's Hoppe saying it, that when a piece of property is privatized, it's important to define whether or not there are pre-existing rights and pre-existing uses of that piece of land that need to be preserved with an easement or by some other means, or possibly at least mitigated, you know, where the previous users are maybe paid off, right? Or they're given another piece of land to hunt on, in our example, or something like that. Now, the difference between what we're going to argue and what Hoppe argues here is that in Hoppe's example of this village, he sees this public right-of-way easement to use the road as being limited to, I mean, I guess he's not really clear, but I guess it would be the residents of that village or, you know, the property owners of that village who have been using that road. But then he says, and this is where the immigration angle comes in, he says, vis-a-vis -vis foreigners or strangers, the street owner can determine the rules of entry regarding uninvited strangers. So this is a point of Hoppe that we're going to challenge. So Hoppe's saying that, yeah, you know, all these, all the, the residents here of this village, you know, however he's defining that, I don't know if it's the people on the road, is it the people in the whole village, is it anybody who's ever used that road down to the lake? Is it the children of the people who live in the village? Is it the people who buy the homes from the people in the village, you know, over the years? This isn't clear to me. But at any rate, Hoppe's saying there's some limited group of people who is going to get granted this right-of-way easement to use this road. And then the owner of that road can then essentially create a gated community, right? That he can then decide anybody from the outside who isn't in that defined group of previous users of the road Anybody on the outside, it's up to that, it's now up to that road owner to decide who can use that road or who can't. Th this to me gets pretty goofy pretty quickly. Sure, I mean, you can imagine, you know, a, like a, a small cul-de-sac or something with like a handful of houses on it, where these houses have been built up along like a little dirt road, and those property owners get together and they decide that they're going to you know, when somebody's going to take over ownership of the street, or maybe they form a homeowners association or something to manage the street, this is actually a very common thing, you know, and that's all well and good. And yeah, and then they could, and if they're the only ones that ever, that ever come and access that, then they could certainly make that, you know, a little gated community if they want and prevent other people from, from coming in and out. Likewise, when you have new developments and a developer is building, you know, he comes off of a public road and, and he's building uh, new roadways to a series of new housing lots, he could certainly make that a gated community, right? There, there has been no previous use of these new roads that he's creating there. 
And so, yeah, so he could certainly decide to allow or to exclude certain people from his new gated community. Where Hoppe gets into trouble here, I think, is in this example he's, he's given in this whole paper, where the way he's described it is this is really like a public road. This is really like a, a road that, that's used by anybody. I mean, he talks about this village, but he kind of starts the example with a village. But as I described, you know, when I critique this, you really have to back it up before that. Chances are the road was there even before the village, right? He mentioned this path going down to a lake, and a lot of people are using that path. And then you imagine, you know, one person building a house there along the path, and then another person on the other side, and then eventually this village gets built up around it. But the public use of that path was well established long before the village was even there. And as I said before, you know, even with the village itself, it gets really difficult to define, well, who actually gets this easement to access this road? Who gets this right-of-way easement and who doesn't? What I would argue is that in this kind of a case where we acknowledge that there should be an easement for previous users of the road to continue to access it once it becomes privatized, but there's no feasible way to actually identify a select group of people who have earned that right, who have earned that easement by their previous use. And again, what if you've gone over it one time, do you get the access right? You know, if, do you have to go over it 10 times to get the access right? If you went over it five years ago, do you get the access right? You know, if you're just there on vacation one time, like there are all these questions that make Hoppe's type of limited easement here really pretty unworkable in this situation. So to me, the simplest solution here is that that road owner, when he privatizes that road, should grant a public easement, meaning that it remains a public road available for anybody in the public to use and to travel over from one end to the other. So under this arrangement, remember that what we're talking about here is the right of the property owner to evict people and the justification for that eviction right. So when we talk about this sort of right or privilege, there's a burden of proof on the person who is taking the aggressive action. So there's not a burden of proof on the users of the road to demonstrate that they have the right to use that road. The burden of proof is on the road owner to demonstrate that they have the right to evict a given person. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and this is, I think, a problem with the kind of arguments that I was hearing Dave Smith make in some of his discussions where he's saying, you know, what gives anybody the right to access this piece of government property? But you're right. I mean, that's not the way we should be thinking about it. I like to think of this as like the Bill of Rights fallacy, <laughs> meaning that, you know, of course, when the Bill of Rights was written, the thought was that people have all these freedoms except for these very few powers that are enumerated for the government. But of course, what it's turned into is that now people think that the only freedoms people have are those limited freedoms that are enumerated in the Bill of Rights, and anything else is fine for government to do. I think some of these arguments fall into that trap where they're saying, well, you know, what right do these people have? How do they prove that they have a right to access this public space? But when you think about it, as you said, that what really needs to be defended and justified here is the person who's claiming a right to evict somebody from that space. That's the thing that is potentially a violation of the non-aggression principle. That is the thing that's most likely to lead to conflict here. Now, this raises a question of, well, okay, so, so are we saying that a road owner in this situation can't evict anybody for anything? Does that mean that you know anybody can just come onto the road and do whatever they want? 
somebody could just like have a parade on the middle of a Tuesday morning down the road and, and stop all the traffic or, or whatever. And that's not what we're arguing. When you get to a situation where you start to have conflicts of uses over the road, there needs to be a way to manage and mitigate those conflicts so that the established uses of the road can be preserved. So in other words, if use of this space has been established as a road and somebody wants to come in and like set up a tent in the middle of the road, right? Michael Malice in one of his episodes with Dave gave this, gave this example of, you know, a person like set, pitching a tent on subway tracks, you know, and is that something libertarians should defend? And no, of course not, because the use of that road that has been established and that is being protected by this easement is limited to the right to, let's say, travel over this road. And so the guy who now owns the road certainly has the right to evict people who are stepping outside of that easement, you know, who are stepping outside of, of the defined public uses for this space. Another way to look at this is that a property owner who evicts someone from a public road is really aggressing against that person in the same way that a bum who sets up his tent on the sidewalk is. You know, both of them are preventing that user from using that public access way in a way that's consistent with the use that's been established. So I think that's the way we need to approach these sort of scenarios. And that's where this framework of established uses has a bit more power to resolve these conflicts than a standard libertarian property ownership model does. Yeah, I know. I think that's a great argument. And look, I mean, we, we can apply this to things like, you know, the, the bomb in the playground. It's like, how was that playground created and why? It was obviously created for kids to go and enjoy themselves there. And if some guy is there shooting up in the playground, obviously that's creating a conflict for the intended users of the playground who have the right to use that playground, uh, which are these kids. So it's pretty clear there that that guy can be evicted from the playground. However, if you have like a homeless encampment under a bridge, <laughs> you know, that nobody's cared about for years and, and, and there's been people, you know, living under the bridge for, for a while and, and that's kind of where these homeless people find themselves in a city. And then someone goes and says, well, this is, you know, this is public property. This land belongs to the people. You know, you can't be here doing this. It's like, or let's say this, let's say that someone then wants to say, you know what, we should build a playground under this bridge. <laughs> well, there I would say, well, no, you can't build a playground there. This is where these people sleep. Like this is, this is their home. This is, you know, even if they haven't formally claimed that land, they've obviously established a use of that land as sleeping place for homeless people. And so whatever happens to that land in the future, if that use continues, there should be an easement there for homeless people to continue sleeping there. I think that actually solves both problems, right? It gives the homeless people a place to go, and it gets them out of the playground. Yeah, and of course, having a homeless encampment under a bridge where it's publicly visible isn't always the most palatable solution for people living in that town. But then it would be up to them to create some other sort of arrangement that they can offer to these people. You know, it could be some sort of a homeless shelter or some other land parcel, maybe just outside of town where they can go. Nobody wants to have this sort of eyesore of a homeless encampment in their town. But under certain conditions, and especially where this is, we haven't ta really talked about government land yet, but in a minute we'll get into what happens if that land that they're camping on is government land. In a Hoppian private property, fully owned society, someone that came and, and set up their homeless encampment under a bridge, well, whatever that space was they're setting it up at, would likely be, already be owned by someone. And so in that case, they could be evicted. But it gets a bit messier when that land that they're on is government-owned land. 
Yeah, not only that, but there are also there are also arguments about things like abandonment and stuff, right? If this is a bridge that was built 50 years ago and nobody's ever, you know, done anything with that space under the bridge. And they've these these guys have kind of found that place and they've been there for 10 years now. Um, and then somebody goes and mows the grass down and finds that now they can see all these people in there. It's like, um, you know, there are interesting arguments to get in there about you know, adverse use and abandonment and stuff like that, where at what point have these people now established some kind of use there? And at what point has a previous owner relinquished some of those rights? But let's not get into all that here. And another important point you just made is that this kind of easement isn't the only solution here. You can also have mitigation. So if, if this is a case, if they want to build a playground under the bridge and, they, and there's a homeless encampment under there, they could come up with some kind of mitigation, as you said, finding a better place for these people, you know, or even, even I don't know, giving them cash. You know, <laughs> I mean, this, this kind of thing is very common in development that developers will come in and through, through planning processes and approvals that they end up offering up certain types of mitigation to the neighborhood around them in order to get the project permitted. And I'm not going to say here whether all that stuff is right or wrong, but, but that does happen. It's a very common thing. So mitigation or easements are two good ways to address pre-existing uses of property. Now, if you've been with us so far, <laughs> the big question here is what is the status of government-owned property? and particularly government-owned public space. So first of all, let me address an argument that, again, I've heard Dave Smith make, which goes something like, if you think that anybody just has access to any government property and that the government can't evict them or prevent them from entering government property because it's public or whatever, then what's to stop you know, some 50-year-old guy from just going in and wandering around in elementary school, right? That's government property. What gives government the right to evict them from, from the school? I think we've already kind of made this clear, but of course, the argument there would be that, well, th there was never like a pre-established use of that school as, as a public space, you know, as a public space that anybody could enter. Um, presumably, the school was built in order, to, in order to teach children, and obviously part of that is keeping the children safe from random people walking around the building. So to me, it, it's kind of an apples and oranges thing to say that that, that, that somehow refutes the possibility that there can be some, and we would argue many, government-owned properties on which there should be an easement for public access. Yeah, and I think this is where we need to really distinguish between public space and government-owned property, where really they're, they're two completely different categories, as Tim said, apples and oranges. And I think Dave's right in that there probably are a lot of libertarians that will make this argument that government-owned space is illegitimately owned, therefore it's unowned space, therefore anyone can access it at any time. But what that really misses is this distinction between the established uses of that space, regardless of who the owner is. Yeah, let me just emphasize something that, that you just said. The semantics of you know, public versus private versus government and common, I think we want to be really careful about how we use the words public and private. I think we as libertarians should stop calling government stuff public. Right? There's, there's nothing particularly public about government, right? Public suggests like a certain amount of inclusivity and empowerment and community. You can look at what governments actually are, how they're organized, who actually has input to them, how they're controlled, uh, what they own, what they manage, you know, what rights and privileges they grant to people. And there's nothing particularly public about it. I mean, 
you could think of something like like just like a, a, a joint stock corporation, you know, where anybody has the ability to buy an ownership share in a publicly traded company. I mean, there's a sense in which that's a more public form of ownership than like my town government, where you know somebody who drives through my town every day has no say over what happens on the roads in my town, even though they use it frequently. So to me, this is similar to the argument Michael Malice has made about the mainstream media that, you know, we shouldn't call them the mainstream media because they're no longer mainstream. You have guys like Joe Rogan, who have much bigger audiences than, you know, the legacy CNN, MSNBC, and all these, these news, news organizations. He prefers the term corporate media. We shouldn't give them the badge of honor of being called mainstream. Similarly, I don't think we should give government the badge of honor of being public. I think we should just call public property government-owned property. And similarly, with private property or privatization of, of property, this implies exclusivity. It implies kind of privilege and, you know, isolationism. And of course, we can think of many types of private property where that's just not the case. This is all a kind of a semantic argument, but, but you're right. I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between government-owned things and non-government-owned things as opposed to just using the terms public and private. At this point, I think we've established that there can be certain roads and other public spaces that are truly public access spaces where nobody has a right to evict people without cause, like they do on private property. So now the question is, what is the status of roads that have been created by or are owned by government? We can break this down into maybe a couple of, of general categories. First of all, there are going to be some roads out there that were created and existed you know, before any government really claimed ownership and maintenance of them. I live here in Maine, and you know, my town was founded in the 1600s. And I've seen old maps of my town where a lot of the main roads existed more or less where they do now, even way back then. And back then, you know, obviously before cars and stuff, you just there were basically like some of these might have just been trails through the woods or like paths for horses. And so they probably didn't take a whole lot of maintenance. And of course, there's this whole you know, literature and libertarianism about how roads used to be maintained by people who lived around them. They go out a few times a year and you know, get rocks off the road and fill in the potholes and all that kind of stuff to just keep them up. So I think it's fair to say that there are some roads out there that existed well before any government laid claim to them. And a lot of those have probably been pretty well established as public roads. In other words, there's been so much traffic over them over the years that our baseline assumption should be that there's public access, that nobody has a, a right to evict people, and that if there is a current owner like a government, that they should respect that, that they should treat these as a road with public access, of course with reasonable limitations for things like tra you know traffic laws and speed limits and stuff like that, that support the use of the road by public users. The second category of government-owned roads we could think about are roads that governments have built but that were done so with the general intent that they're for public access. In other words, you know, there was never any intent for the government to limit certain people coming on and off of these roads. So these are new roads on previously unowned or unused land or whatever, where they're creating a road and a pathway where it hasn't existed before. So in other words, there's no pre-existing use of this piece of land for a road or, or maybe anything else. Or, you know, maybe they, they buy up other properties so that they're able to carve a new road through. Typically, when governments create these kind of roads, they're created for public use. 
they typically don't have like a gateway onto the road where they're checking and limiting, you know, certain people who can go on and off of it. Obviously you have tolls, but that's just a way to pay for the roads. And, you know, we'll talk about later why that might be justified, but it's not like, you know, on Hoppe's easement example, where there's like certain people that have a right to use this road while other people don't. Typically when a government creates something like a highway, the expectation, the general expectation is and should be that it's for public use. And in fact, in societies where they do go around, you know, checking people's papers on public spaces, you know, that this is stuff that we make fun of as libertarians. This is like something we see, we view as totalitarian, you know, that a government should know where people are at all times in public space. You know, this is the whole, this is like a vaccine passport kind of thing that everybody's up in arms about, right? And rightfully so. When it comes to public space, we don't want to give government the right to be checking everybody and limiting everybody and telling everybody where they can and can't go. Yeah, and we should also clarify that this isn't because taxpayers have paid for the road. It's simply because the reason the road was built was to provide public access. The fact that taxpayers have paid for it is relevant from a sort of restitution standpoint in the sense that, you know, if you ever toppled the government and were actually able to recover taxpayer funds, those taxpayers are the ones who would get their money back. But it doesn't really change the, the purpose that the road was built for. Yeah, we're going to get to that taxpayer thing in a minute, because that's another thing I've challenged. But you're right. I mean, the, the point here is that what is the use of the road? How was the road established and how has it been used over time? You know, once a road is built as a public road and, and it's being used by the public, again, we're back to that situation where there's no way to determine who has used the road and who hasn't, you know, so who has established like a use claim <laughs> to that road over time. And so again, here, I think that the proper way that we should think about this is that these types of roads are created by the government for public use and public access. And if ownership ever transfers from the government to a private entity or, or whoever, that that public access right and easement should be maintained. And again, to clarify, we're not saying that this justifies something like eminent domain. This specific category is where there's unused, unowned land that the government has claimed to build the road. Either that or they, it's land that they've acquired legitimately. Right. The third category we want to think about is roads in public space that are created by government where they're not intended for public access and use. So, you know, an example of this might be a government facility. I live near a Navy shipyard, and they have a gatehouse to get into it where, you know, they're checking everybody who comes through to make sure that they have you know, the proper clearance and qualifications to come on to the Navy base. Similarly, with things like schools, you can limit who could come on and off of school property and set rules around that. And so to the extent that you know, a government is going to exist and create facilities and maintain facilities, it's certainly possible for them to do that in a way where they have roads and, and public spaces where they're limiting access to them. And once they've done that, then you, know, you don't have that public access established like you do on public roads. We've addressed this already, but this this gets to the objection that, well, what about, you know, does that mean that that a 50-year-old man can just go walk around a school a school building or a school property just because it's it's government and public? Well, no, certain spaces were never established for public use, and so we don't need to consider them as having that easement for public access like we do on roads where that has been established. Put your daughter through the scanner again, please. What? Okay, so if we zoom out now and think about the big picture of what does this mean? 
if we have these these combinations of government roads that have public access and some government roads that do not. Well, in the big picture, most roads have been established as public access roads. There are very few government-owned roads where they've established, you know, some restrictions on access. And to the extent that they do, you know, those they tend to be well defined, like I said, like on, you know, on some government facility property or, or something like that. So for me, the mental map we should have is that you have privately owned parcels of land where people's homes and businesses are that are all interconnected by a network of public access spaces. Yeah, and if you think about it, once you make allowance for easements, essentially what you're doing is you're saying, okay, this guy who lives in this property is able to access some other property via whatever route makes sense. Once you apply that across an entire town or city, it almost necessarily leads to a network of public spaces where everyone is interconnected to this network. So let's say that person A, we'll call him Murray, has invited person B, let's call him Hans, to come visit his house. And there's a person C, we'll call him Walter, who has a, a property in between the two. Once we allow this, this idea of an easement to prevent encirclement, which I'm guessing that Walter would be pretty likely to do, then that effectively establishes an easement or a path from Hans's house to Murray's house and vice versa. So encirclement would be, let's say that I build a property on unowned land, and then Tim comes in and he claims all the property around me and prevents me from trespassing across his property. What he's effectively done there is imprisoned me on my own property, and I have no way to get out of there. Now, there's some arguments that have been made around this, like saying, oh, well, even if that happens, you could dig a tunnel or you could get in a helicopter or something like that. But I think in any real world situation, that stuff's pretty impractical and, and it would be silly to actually argue that as a, as a reasonable solution. So really what the solution is, is for Tim to allow me an easement to walk through his property to get out to the broader world. Now, let's say that in addition to Hans and Murray having this wonderful friendship, let's say there are more people there who are willing to welcome both Hans and Murray onto their properties. Let's just say someone opens a shop somewhere, and so he's willing to have essentially the general public invited to his property. So this means that Murray needs access to this guy's shop, and Hans also needs access to the shop, and really Walter also needs access to the shop. You can see that as this sort of thing expanded to a larger village or town, it naturally makes sense that you're going to end up with these kind of pr public thoroughfares where you have these public businesses, as well as sort of a fractal network of other easements that grant access to all the other property owners who are spread around that central area. So I think that as soon as you allow for an easement proviso, proviso or proviso? <laughs> Stefan Gonzella calls it the Blockian proviso. Is that the, okay. <laughs> well, let's, let's just call it the easement proviso so we don't forget what's what here. <laughs> We've got enough names thrown around here. So once you allow for this easement proviso, I think that it effectively guarantees that you'll establish some sort of public access spaces, which would end up looking like a typical kind of road network. Yeah, and some libertarians make arguments like, well, you know, nobody would develop a piece of property unless they had secured the proper easements to get to that property first. But that to me is, you know, pretty unworkable. It's like, wh what are you talking about easements? Easements to where and from where? You know, you're going out and getting... And, and, and securing some kind of easements to, to every piece of property that you might ever want to go to. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's, 
at some point expecting that to happen again in this model where you know every property owner gets to decide who does or does not have access to their property or let's say their road they say oh that can work as long as people just get easements for where they need to go but but you're never going to go out and get you know all the easements you need to get everywhere that you would would ever want to go you know this is where that that whole model really breaks down and and just gets really bizarre <laughs> i should say that you know when you have like a new development let's say a housing development you'll have a, a network of roads you know let's say they're cul-de-sacs you know, off of this within this development that eventually all spit you out onto a public roadway or public highway and typically when that's done you you might have in your deed something that says that you have the right to pass and repass over all of the roads of that development and you know, certainly if you have like, if it's like a gated community then that that becomes pretty important but in practice even a lot of those roads end up being used essentially as public roads you know the public access where nobody's limiting who can can come in or out of them other than in let's say like a gated community which as we said before is is perfectly legitimate if that's built up as a private development this also doesn't mean that just because people can walk up to your front gate that they can just walk onto your property again we do still think that preservation of private property and eviction rights are valuable and can be legitimized all it means is that unless you're in something like a gated community where there is where you have established this private use of internal roads that you can't prevent someone from walking up to your gate as long as they're remaining on that public road and as long as they're not standing in front of your gate and somehow preventing you from leaving your house or from using your property you know that what do we say like the quiet enjoyment of your own property so if someone's standing at your front gate yelling obscenities at you this isn't okay you know this is now this guy's preventing you from enjoying the use of your own property. And again, this comes back to this whole, this whole concept of it's not about whether this guy's violating your property right. It's about whether or not he's preventing you from using your property in a way that you've established. Let me go back to, I just want to make a real, another real quick point about the, the encirclement question. The way you described it, it sounds like this kind of unlikely scenario, you know, where you would have someone develop a piece of land and then somebody homesteads all the land around it and encloses that person, you know, that property in, in circles and traps it. But if you think about a grid of roads, that's essentially what it's doing. You know, if you have <laughs> if you have a grid of roads with a property in the middle of it, then whoever owns that that grid of roads is encircling that property. And so that kind of discussion and that blocking proviso, which says you need to have an easement to access this property, it starts to become important. And again, I think that our arguments for public access on these public roads, it really makes that blocking proviso almost unnecessary. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, you know, once somebody has access to a piece of property, whatever path they took to access that property, you could argue that they've established that access right, especially if this is a property that they're, that they're going back and forth to. If they've got a driveway or roadway or trail through the woods or something that they've started using just to get to their property and do whatever kind of development they're doing on their property, they would have had to have established some kind of an access path to that property, which means that if somebody comes after them and is trying to claim and develop that land, at the very least, they would need to preserve or recreate, you know, maybe, maybe somewhere else, that access right for that property owner. Which is essentially saying the same thing that that block is saying about maintaining this this easement for access. We're arguing that it's established by that person accessing the land in the first place. The other thing that the that the blocking proviso says it really also addresses unused or unclaimed land. 
so that if you have an unclaimed plot of land that's encircled, Block would say that there needs to be an easement for really anybody to access that unclaimed piece of land in order to homestead it. So to sum up this whole argument about how libertarians should think about public space, I would argue that rather than thinking of a libertarian society as one in which every piece of property is owned by a private property owner who has the right to allow or prohibit anybody they choose from accessing that property, we would argue that an optimally free society is one that has parcels of truly sovereign private property with strong eviction rights that are interconnected by a network of public roads and public spaces from which it is difficult to be evicted. Okay, so now that we've set out this theory, how do we apply this to the immigration debate? I think this framework actually helps to see the problem a bit more clearly, so that rather than looking at it as there are certain borders that people are crossing, what you're really doing is, is addressing what are the actual kind of core issues that arise from immigration. And those take the form of something along the lines of homeless encampments or of people using public resources that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. So I think we can start from a kind of purely theoretical approach and then move into some more of the real world situations and see how we would address those. So it should be pretty obvious by now that we think there's no justification for limiting someone's access to these public roads and public spaces, as long as their use of those public spaces are not preventing other people from using them in the, in the established ways. Hoppe talks about the solution to immigration as being essentially an invitation-only system, where this means that if, in my previous scenario, if Murray lives in Texas and Hans lives in Mexico, then Murray could invite Hans to stay at his house and nobody should prevent Hans from being able to do that. This is sort of the standard Hoppian approach to immigration. And there's a little bit more around this where if we're talking about a sort of long-term permanent immigration scenario that Murray might have to sort of vouch for Hans in the sense that he can provide for him and that Hans won't become some sort of a public charge who's reliant on, let's say, government welfare programs. And now, of course, since we're in the realm of theory here, initially we'll, we'll assume that we are in that kind of perfect libertarian society and that there are no government welfare programs that Hans can sap off from. So in this scenario, it doesn't really matter if the roads themselves are privately owned and if people have eviction rights from these roads. What matters is that people don't have eviction rights for people who are invited to go visit other property owners. So this gets more complicated when it's more of a real-world situation where we do have these systems of taxpayer-funded welfare which means that anyone who can access those systems is essentially able to take money from the existing taxpayers via the welfare system. Now, to the extent that this system is funded through forcible taxation as opposed to some sort of voluntary system, then this is obviously a problem. And especially if the criteria for accessing this system is simply that someone can walk into a town and now they've got access to the funds from the taxpayers of this town. In this sort of small microcosm, it's pretty clear to see that it's not a very libertarian solution to grant someone the right to other people's money just by dint of their having walked into the town. And so the way Hoppe deals with this, he envisions the roads themselves as being privately owned by some sort of corporation of the town. And what's interesting is that the way Hoppe envisions decisions being made 
around who can and can't enter the town, beyond just a simple private invitation, is essentially a, a democratic solution. Where he says, oh, well, well, we can assume that the majority of people in town don't want to have all these immigrants coming through their town. And so it's funny because, you know, Hoppe, Mr. Democracy, the God that failed, is effectively appealing to democracy here for his determination of who can and can't enter the town. So beyond this just being kind of a weak argument, we don't really see it as being a legitimate solution, even from a Hoppian perspective, as to who can access these public roads. Yeah, again, I mean, I, I think there's nothing about the roads that legitimize somebody, you know, evicting people because of like the nation they were born in, you know, and like that's a qualification of whether or not they can access a certain road. I mean, for one thing, that's not done now, even like immigration services. It's like they'll snatch someone up, whether they're on a road or whether they're on private property, like it has nothing to do with the road. That's a whole separate regulation they've come up with that just says, you know, if you were born over there instead of over here then you have to go back over there. And it's got nothing to do, it's really got nothing to do with roads or anything else like that. And I think that the way to think about this is, again, if we're, if we're looking at the world as a network of you know, public roads connecting private properties, then just like people do now, like between different states in the United States, it's like you can move from Boston to Maine and you know no one's going to stop you from doing that. And in fact, you can have, in fact, we just had over this past year with COVID, where cities were locking down, Boston and New York, and, and people were starting to work remotely, we've seen a flood of people come up to Maine here um, from those cities. Like our housing prices has just gone haywire, and all these little towns up here are just like filling up with people looking to get out of these cities. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, that's different because, you know, these people have money or whatever, but it's the same kind of strain on a locality that these anti-immigration people argue about. It's like, look at you have this whole group of people that's going to arrive here, that is going to put a strain on these local systems. And so therefore, you know, we need to prevent that from happening. And of course, the libertarian's response should be, well, no, we should you know, allow people to come and allow them to invest in and to build and to start businesses in these places. It's like, yeah, with any kind of migration like this, there can be shocks to the system. And not just, not just like you said, the welfare system, but like I said, the local housing stock, you know, employment, people coming and being able to find work. These are all considerations, but these are considerations, you know, within a country, <laughs> probably more so than they are for people outside of the country coming in. In fact, it's it's almost more of a problem to have wealthier people moving around than it is to have poorer people coming around. Because if someone's if someone's dirt poor and they move to the states and they can't get a job and they can't get a place to stay, they're not going to stay very long. You know, I mean, yes, people do, and and you know, you get into these like homeless encampments and stuff, but, but by and large, you're like, at some point that incentive kind of goes away if you really just can't afford the place that you're trying to move to, which is really what we're seeing all over the United States right now. You know, the housing costs are ridiculous. As we've said through our whole, the whole series of our podcast, these cities and towns have made it so hard to build new housing to meet demand that, that you just don't have available housing and housing prices go up. And, and that's a real problem for people coming here, whether they're, you know, whether you're coming from a different state or whether you're coming from a different country. And so I think there's a sense in which the market starts to solve the kind of problems that anti-immigration advocates worry about. You can get some number of people that can come to a certain area for a certain period of time and maybe cause a shock to the system. But over the long term, I think that those things work themselves out, and that generally an increasing population you know, is, is a good thing. <laughs> 
that tend, tends to lead to growth and entrepreneurship and community and all the things we talk about with, with cities of, of having a little more density where you start to be able to support different kinds of cultural activities and all that kind of stuff. This idea of looking at a growing population as a net negative, I think is generally wrong. And, you know, this idea that you're going to have, like, I think, you know, Dave, one of the arguments like Dave made is, you know, what if you had like a hundred thousand people from India, you know, show up on the border at the same time or something like that. Right. Well, look, I mean, for one thing, the, the, the population of the United States is what, 300 something million people. And so like a hundred thousand people, like, yeah, that sounds like a big number. But if you look at the country as a whole, that's not that hard for the nation to absorb. Yeah, after Hurricane Katrina, I was in Houston. I was talking to a guy in Houston, and he was saying how, you know, just the city of Houston alone just absorbed this massive number of people who came over there from New Orleans, you know, because their homes had been destroyed in New Orleans. So they had all these essentially refugees, just, you know, no different really than any refugees coming from a foreign country who went from New Orleans to Houston. And he said, you know, Houston just absorbed them without blinking an eye. It's such a huge city. And, you know, it's interesting because. One thing that uh, a lot of the kind of urbanists will be familiar with is that Houston has some of the loosest zoning requirements in America. So people complain that that causes a lot of sprawl and stuff, but it also causes Houston to have some of the lowest house prices in America and to be able to absorb large numbers of people like this. Yeah, I, I saw at one point, I think it was Houston, in some city in Texas, where there was some stat that it, you know within some certain period of time, like over 10 years or something, that the population had expanded as much as Manhattan's had, or as much as maybe as New York City as a whole, within that period of time. And while New York's housing prices skyrocketed, Houston's, you know, basically maintained at a fairly steady, you know, there's probably some like minor, like cost of living increase, basically, you know, because they are more able to, um, to build housing to meet demand. They're able to absorb that population growth. I think Dave's question is, is worth asking though. And one question he had asked Spike in the debate was, okay, well, what's the number at which you would think it's too much? You know, what's the point at which you couldn't just assume that, that it's, it's enough people that could just be absorbed? You know, like let's say it was you know, 100,000 people a day coming to the border or something like that. You know, something where, where it was some massive number of people that just would simply overwhelm the system. And I think in the debate, I think Spike kind of dodged the question by saying, oh, well, you know, that, that's a very unrealistic scenario. It's like, what would it take to actually cause that number of people to suddenly migrate to the U.S.? So I don't think they really resolved that in the debate, but it is something to consider. And, you know, the reality is we can all complain and say, oh, well, if they hadn't, you know, we, if we didn't have the drug war, we wouldn't have this many immigrants. And if we didn't have all these other policies messing around in everyone else's countries, you know, and, and destroying their governments and everything that we wouldn't have all these refugee crises. And yeah, that's great. That's fine. But that's, it's really just kind of libertarian wishful thinking. You know, I mean, the fact is, is that, yeah, there are these government policies that disrupt other countries. And as a result, there are a lot of these refugees coming to America and other countries. And so it's one of these questions of, you know, you can't solve a problem just by theorizing that the world was a different place than it is. And I think this is really the crux of Dave's argument here. You know, he's, he's on board with all the hopping stuff. And, I, you know, honestly, I think that if we sat down and had a chat to him, we could probably get him on board with, with what we're talking about, too, because, you know, like we've said, it does actually give a, a stronger argument to a lot of the points he's making about nuisances and about people preventing the rightful use of property. So this is really what Dave is concerned about. It's to say, well, look, you know, we get this real world situation where 
there exists a U.S. government and there exists these people trying to come in and cross the borders. So what should be done? I think for the purpose of argument here, we can assume that the number of people coming is large enough that it would overwhelm the system. Or, or even if you don't assume that, you could just say, well, look, you know, these people will come to America and they will be granted welfare support. They could potentially be granted voting rights in certain states. And so in this real world scenario, even the thing that you just talked about saying that, well, you know, why would people stay in America if they can't find housing, if they can't get a job? The reality is that it might still be better than whatever it is that they're leaving from. You know, they could stay in America and be poor and hungry, or they could be back in their own country and be poor and hungry and be terrorized by some sort of military outfit or, or other terrorists or, or whoever it is that caused the problem that they left in the first place. So while I think that markets over the medium and long term can provide the resources that these people need in a way that doesn't disrupt life for the existing residents, you know, again, the, the reality is we're in a world where there are so many impediments on letting those markets develop properly that to guys like Dave, it makes more sense to say, well, look, let's just, you know, hold them at the gates, keep them out of the country, you know, until we can get to the point where we can actually establish the means to support these people without depriving existing residents of their established uses of, of the land. Another point to make here is that, you know, it's not like like even us as, as uh, I guess, open borders advocates. Even I probably wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, I would smash the button, you know, if there was a button to make the borders open borders tomorrow, you know, would I push that button? You know, probably not. I'd probably say, you know, we need like a like a, a 10 year, I'm assuming that that some this could be stuck to, you know, a 10 year plan, let's say, to start to open up the border more gradually to to allow, you know, more and more people in and eventually get to the point where we have open borders, because that that kind of takes that question about about this like a sudden shock to the system <laughs> it kind of takes that off the table you know depending on how you on how you roll that out so i think that 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 concern about like if we did this today you know we'd have all these people all of a sudden show up and it'd be you know what i mean if you're arguing in good faith you, you know you need to say well okay yeah, of course we would probably do this in, in a gradual way so that when we eventually get to something like open borders that whatever that backlog is of people wanting to get into the country that we're able to absorb that over a period of time. Yeah, and of course, the problem with this is that, and, and the argument that Spike was making, is that, okay, well, the government right now can't prevent people from coming into the country. I mean, they can in some cases, but they do so in a way that is so intrusive, even on existing residents' rights, you know, where they have these checkpoints inside the borders and stuff like that, where they're harassing U.S. citizens. It's a it's the age old kind of libertarian thing. It's like, well, you know, here, here's here's the most important thing that needs to be done, um, and so what we're going to let the government do it? <laughs> like they're going to screw it up, you know? And that's kind of the argument that Spike was making, and I think Dave agreed with him in the thing. But it's like, it's like, well, look, it's it's you know, what what else have we got? You know, what, what's what other way could this be done? There's almost a sense in which having this one border control at at the national border might be less defensible than having more local border controls, e either enforced within each town or, or within you know, different states or regions or something like that. So that instead of having this one pileup of people at one location on the border, the people would be much more dispersed throughout the whole country. And this might lead to some conflicts in you know, certain towns that wouldn't welcome them in. But I imagine that there would be some towns who would welcome them in. And in this case, it's almost like the hopping solution where it's like, well, yeah, look, someone is inviting them in. The problem is that with the system we have now, 
those people inviting them in aren't on the hook to actually support them. So even the people who wouldn't allow them into their town still end up footing the bill for them in some sense through their state and federal tax funds, which go to which go to welfare or provision of other services. Right. This is like what people in Manhattan, you know, voting to have, you know, immigrants come to Texas, right? That kind of a thing. Yeah, so, but, but that's the thing is that, you know, again, this is, this is the, when we talk about the roads being a fractal network, I mean, the beauty of a fractal system is that it has almost a maximal surface area that's covered so that if, instead of having this one linear border, you have this kind of fractal border, you know, covering almost the entire area of the United States. And so again, it, it's tricky, you know, if you had that 100,000 people show up in one town, yeah, obviously they're going to run, they're going to overrun that town. It's going to be it's going to be pretty indefensible from the people. But if it was, if the national border was open and the road access was open, the only time you would have any actual kind of conflict or enforcement or eviction would be in the case where these immigrants were actually impeding on people's use of those roads or other public spaces. And again, this is no different than how you would handle something like a homeless problem in your town. Um, Because that's essentially what it is. I mean, mean, essentially what the assumption is that these people are going to come in and become homeless people in your town. So really, the immigration problem is just a particular case of managing public space in a way that preserves everyone's rights to use the public space as well as their own property without being interfered with. So the way we would look at it is that the immigration issue is really a public space issue. And the problem we have is that there's this sort of Gordian knot of government policy that makes it almost impossible to resolve this, you know, from any perspective, whether it's a libertarian perspective or a status perspective. At the end of the day, it's it's almost an intractable problem that they've created, which is often what happens with lots of government policies. So there's never going to be any one kind of clean, perfect solution to it. All right, so let me see if I can wrap this all up here and just kind of sum up what our argument is here. First of all, we've argued that it's not true that in a you know optimal libertarian society that every piece of land, including roads, would be privately owned and that those private owners would have eviction rights or the right to allow or, or prohibit anybody they like from coming onto that property. We've argued that in an ideally free society, you have a network of public roads connecting sovereign parcels of private property. What that means for immigration is that we don't see a libertarian justification for prohibiting people from moving from one place to another based on whatever, where they were born, where they currently live, these really arbitrary kinds of qualifications. People should be allowed to move freely on public roads and to seek whatever opportunities they can find, you know, to find places to stay to find places to build. Certainly, if we don't have all this government-owned property, there's going to be a lot of unowned property that's up for grabs. And the consequentialist types of arguments for maintaining something like the current immigration system, I mean, yeah, there, there can certainly be shocks to a system from migration movements, but these kind of things happen within the borders of a country, as well as from outside the borders of a country. And a world in which people are more free to build and start businesses and create housing and create private schools and and, homeschool. And people find ways to solve these problems in free markets. And at the same time, markets put pressure on people 
that tends to push back against some of the potential harms of something like a mass migration. And you know, what one final note I'll say here is Dave argues that that his immigration arguments are, you know, looking at the real world. They're these real world arguments, you know, that we're not living in a capstan in our heads, that we need to understand, you know, what, what people would actually accept in the real world. What we've described with this network of public roads, I mean, that is how people perceive the real world. People perceive these as public roads with public access. And it would be bizarre to have a system in place where people are constantly getting, you know, checked and have their documents checked along public rights of way just to make sure that we have the right people on the right roads in the right places. You know, that's something that if we're ever going to argue for some kind of transition away from this, this state of society that we have and things like divesting road ownership away from government to non-governmental forms of ownership, uh, which, by the way, we didn't get, get into that in this episode, but uh, we've talked about it previously in our episodes 13 and 14 and 19, which were our previous episodes about public space. If something like that's ever going to happen, it needs to happen with an eye towards the real world. And, and the way that people perceive the world out there is the system of public roads that they have access to. And so when ANCAPs come out and say, in an anarchist society, all of this property would be privately owned and you know, you'd have access controls over what are now public roads, that's never going to fly with people in the real world. Like that's not how, you know, if you, Dave, Dave had notes about, you know, polls about what people think about immigration and whether you should allow it or open borders or whatever. I mean, you try taking a poll of people and saying, you know, do you think that what are currently public roads should be sold off to private owners and that those private owners get to say who goes on them or who doesn't? I mean, you know, talk about, talk about living in a cabistan in your head. Like that will never, that will never fly. And that's, and it really alienates people from what we're trying to propose as as actually reasonable ways to divest roads from government ownership. Yeah, so look, I don't think we can claim that we've resolved the immigration issue here, but in reality, there are no simple solutions. But imagining that simply preserving the status quo of border control and immigration enforcement will avoid the problems of immigration, I think that also misses the mark. In our previous Citizen of Nowhere episodes, episodes uh, six and seven, we talked about some of this stuff in quite a bit more detail as well, as far as some of the economic arguments, why it might make sense to allow more immig immigrants in. And I know that Dave is aware of these as well. He's mentioned this in the debate. So I don't think libertarians or anybody else is really going to resolve immigration issues short of a radical restructuring of society <laughs> along the lines of proper libertarian theory. So I guess one argument that libertarians could make is that you know if, if we're talking to people on the left— there's probably some sort of a compromise that could be made here, but which never would be made, which is that, you know, if the left wants to have open immigration, they can have it, but they have to be willing to allow people to enforce their own property rights, which means no taxation, so no coercively funded welfare systems. It means that people can protect their own property rights, which means that they can prevent people from accessing their property by force if necessary. And of course, they need to eliminate restrictions on building and other impediments to building that would allow proper housing to be built where these people could live. It's pretty simple. If you don't want homeless people, you got to allow homes to be built. And for all the grandstanding by people on the left, NIMBYism, just like war, is a bipartisan policy that's supported by everybody who thinks the government has a right to say what people can and can't do with their own property. So if folks on the left and the right are really serious about ending the problems associated with immigration, then all they have to do is abolish the state and accept a world of Hoppian covenant communities 
with a strongly enforced block-in proviso. It doesn't sound like we're asking that much, does it? <laughs> no, it's perfectly reasonable. This is the pragmatic solution. Yeah, back again. Touching down on solid ground. Nothing can stop us. Except maybe this here, border control. Take off my hat and shades to show my face. That's dangerous, son. I'm too pretty for this place. What? You don't speak rap at this border? Let me have the rap master translate for ya. You think rap master ain't my real name? Well, that would be a shame, because rapping is my game. Yeah, I got my own game. I ain't in your system. I got my own rules, too. Okay, I'll list them. Rule number one, don't initiate force. Rule two, don't think my rhymes ain't better than yours. You just broke one and two. So what we gonna do? This don't look good for you and your badge-wearing crew. You got a good talking to coming to you. Yeah, what's coming to you? A good talking to. True. You say you want to send me home? Why are you still talking? I'm the one who got the microphone and you got owned. Ring, ring, that's my ringtone. On my cell phone, everybody wants to know when I'll be on the microphone. You about to get slapped with a rap slap. Can't turn off my phone. I got my own rap app. You say I can't work here? This ain't work for me. It's child's play the way I rap so easily. My rhymes ain't confined by no boundary lines. I'm international, hashtag worldwide. My rap is my passport. The beat is my visa. Occupation. Rapper. Reason for visit. To please you with my rap, I got the rhymes you like. My permanent address is on the mic. Sign the bottom of your form? You think you get a freebie? I got paid for autographs, son. You're lucky just to see me. Anyways, I already tried to sign. But my pen ran out of ink because I write so many rhymes. Call up your parliament. Call your president. They all want to make me a permanent resident. Presiding over your court of law. When I stride through the door, they all rise for me. I'm setting precedents. There's my line. VIP diplomat. I'm an ambassador. I represent the nation of rap. The nation of rap is a nation of two. Because there, there ain't, ain't no, no other rappers who can do, do like we do. do. Ooh. Yeah, I got something to declare, and it ain't this rare fur coat that I wear. I rap here, I rap there, I rap everywhere. Worldwide! Cause I'm a citizen of nowhere. I'll only touch you with the back of my hand. Uh.